This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Nick McClellan joined me for the second instalment of Uncommon Sense's Federal Election Policy Series. Nick is Pacific Affairs Correspondent for Inside Story, and he joined me to talk about Australia's foreign policy, including its relationships with Pacific Island nations. Nick also explores the positions and recent policies of the major parties in relation to the Pacific. This includes exercises of soft power in the region, as well as foreign aid, climate initiatives, and more. Then, I spoke with journalist and author Louisa Lim. Louisa joined me to discuss her new book, Indelible City, Dispossession and Defiance in Hong Kong. Louisa talks about the 2019 protest movement in Hong Kong, as well as key historical events, such as the joint declaration negotiations when Great Britain sought to return Hong Kong to China. Louisa talks about being raised in Hong Kong as a mixed-race child, half Chinese and half English, and she also talks about life as a journalist in Hong Kong, exploring issues of press freedom in the context of the very harsh national security law. Ultimately, Louisa seeks to reinsert Hong Kongers into their own political and social history. Then, Luke Hilakari, Secretary of the Victorian Trades Hall Council, dialed in to discuss the Green Ban, which was just announced as part of efforts to protect the historic John Curtin Hotel in Carlton. Unions and their members will now refuse to work on any redevelopment or demolition of the Curtin Hotel. As a bidder for the hotel, Luke explains what happened, the historical significance of the hotel, and what's next in the fight to save the Curtin Hotel. Without further ado, I'm going to welcome onto the program Nick McClellan, who is Pacific Affairs correspondent for Inside Story. He also works as a correspondent for Islands Business magazine in Fiji. Nick has joined this show as a regular to talk about Pacific politics, and he's joining me now as the person who is going to carry part two of our election policy series, and this part is all about foreign affairs and foreign policy, which normally doesn't take such a prominent position in a federal election campaign, but it really has, and I think the lead-up to the campaign also seemed to indicate this would be the case with a, a very strong focus on China from the coalition, seeking to wedge Labor on national security, and we've only seemingly gone downhill from there. So I welcome Nick, who is going to be talking about Australia's relationship with the Pacific, with China, and also the policies of the major parties. And uh, I'll be adding in there some information about some of the minor parties as well. So thank you so much, Nick, for joining us today. Good morning, Amy. Please be with you. Nick, we were talking off air about the fact that you now are able to go back to Fiji. And, you know, you used to travel very often uh, before the pandemic when we were talking and you were telling us about your trips to the Pacific Islands Forum and many really crucial diplomatic events. So I guess it's a, a very exciting moment for journalists in general to be able to now actually travel on the ground in the Pacific and visit Pacific Island nations uh, to get a better sense of what's happening there. Things are very much opening up um, after the, the worst of the COVID pandemic, although it's worth stressing that it's still a major economic, political health problem in many Pacific Island countries. 
you know, the Pacific Islands Forum, the main intergovernmental organisation that links Australia, New Zealand and Ireland countries, will be meeting um, in early June face-to-face for the first time in a couple of years. The last meeting was in 2019 in uh, Tuvalu, uh, where leaders came together. Um, and indeed, that was a time where there was major uh, criticism of the Australian government under Prime Minister Morrison because of its stand on climate change and other issues. So, you know, the last couple of years have been tough for people in the Pacific economically and health uh, in many countries, although some island countries have avoided the worst of it by simply closing their borders. Um, and they've done a West Australia <laughs> and uh, protected the community on that basis. Yeah, it was a very effective strategy for Western Australia. So I certainly think that there are a number of people who've been saved by those types of strategies. Nick, I know that at the, for example, the Glasgow Climate Summit, you know, every summit that exists, the the UN summits, it seems that the Pacific Island nations are almost the most vocal because climate change is affecting them greatly right now. And Australia itself has been experiencing directly the catastrophic effects of climate change. But I think it's easy to distance oneself from the Pacific when we're not seeing the real effects of climate change. They are. And it seems that Australia in many ways has been signalling its apathy towards that climate cause in general, but also the Pacific Islands uh, situation in regards to climate change. And that's been something that Penny Wong, who is the shadow foreign affairs minister, has brought up as being one of the key kind of points of tension between the uh, coalition and Pacific Island neighbours. I wonder how significant is that? Is it being overplayed by Penny Wong or, or is it actually much greater than we realise? No, it's a significant issue. Um, You know, going back to the days of uh, Prime Minister John Howard, Australia has really dragged its feet and delayed action on addressing um, emissions um, from our fossil fuel industries, oil, gas, coal, um, and uh, was very slow in coming to the table in terms of providing finance uh, to developing countries in our region to address the adverse effects of climate change. And that's manifested in all sorts of ways through sea level rise, through extreme weather events, particularly cyclones, what's called loss and damage, the damage that's already occurring from climate-related events um, rather than events in the future later in the century. Um, You know, so we saw John Howard for for a decade refuse to ratify the Kyoto Protocols, showing my age, going back to the the early days... uh, of um, the 1990s of the climate discussions. And it was only when Kevin Rudd came to office in 2007 that after a decade of delay, the Labor Party ratified um, um, the Kyoto Protocols. We've seen a similar period of, um, of delay under the coalition, starting with uh, Tony Abbott's government in 2013, which saw a major setback in relations with the region in, on a number of fronts. Um, the Abbott government really did enormous damage to the overseas aid program. In one year, they cut a billion dollars, so roughly 20% of the aid budget was chopped in one year. And that was a significant blow to uh, countries, developing countries around the world. And Abbott also did significant damage to many of the institutions that allowed Australia to engage with its island neighbours to uh, the Bureau of Meteorology for cyclone research, to um, uh, CSIRO, which was doing important environmental research in partnership with 
Pacific countries, uh, Radio Australia, which saw a massive uh, devastation of Radio Australia, and the loss of about 80 staff in uh, uh, about 2014 um, when the Abbott government cancelled the contract for the Australian network TV station. So a lot of the institutions uh, that are involved in engagement day by day with our Pacific neighbours were very badly damaged during the Abbott years, and that forced subsequent governments to try and step up um, the relationship uh, uh, to, to repair some of the damage that was done in the early years of the coalition. Absolutely. I'm glad you brought up the Australian Network and Radio Australia. A number of our listeners perhaps aren't familiar with it. As you say, it was cut and finished in 2014 by the Abbott government and Julie Bishop was actually presiding over that as the Foreign Affairs Minister. And it was very controversial at the time, though I think now that we look on it, it should have been even more controversial than it was, given just how significant the Australian network was to the region. It is and was uh, run by the ABC. The Labor Party had actually engaged the ABC in a 10-year contract to provide the service of the Australian Network, which is an international television service. Uh, it had a potential audience of over 144 million people. And it also said that the number of viewers in the region had grown in the last year uh, in 2014. So it was quite surprising to see that the coalition in their major budget cuts decided that they would remove something which many in the foreign policy area saw as a, a crucial tool in Australia's arsenal in terms of soft power. Uh, I wonder, could you explain to those listening what soft power means, especially in practice, and in particular in relation to the Australian network and Radio Australia? As you say, the, the contract, the 10-year contract worth about $250 million for the Australian network TV was um, ended uh, 18 months into the program. But the real damage was not just to the TV station, but also to radio the ABC had merged a number of units together, including uh, the newsroom for Radio Australia, uh, for the Australia TV network, and for its digital uh, broadcasting into the Asia and Pacific region. And so, when the you know within a few months the budget uh, simply dried up, um, having been mapped out over a ten-year period, um, there were massive staff cuts. And beyond the pure numbers, there was a loss of incredible expertise and knowledge about the Pacific Islands. So veteran journalists like Sean Dorney, um, Campbell Cooney, uh, uh, Heather Jarvis, um, uh, Jemima Garrett, many people who'd been crucial in building up a knowledge of the Pacific and not only broadcasting out to the Pacific region, but also bringing the knowledge about the contemporary Pacific into the Australian debates through their work within the ABC, their broadcasting domestically, um, that expertise can't be replaced. So slowly the ABC has been trying to rebuild, um, uh, you know, the, the staff, but there's a lot of young journalists there and that, that long-term networking built up over many years, you know, uh, hundreds of years of experience was lost at that time. And the ABC continued to be forced to make budget cuts internally um, and that led to some bad strategic decisions. And one of them was the closure of the shortwave broadcasting capacity, um, as well as broadcasting digitally uh, through satellite and, and so on. Um, shortwave is particularly important for the Pacific Islands. 
more so than Asia, you know, where the, the shift to digital uh, broadcasting is more significant. But in many rural and regional areas of countries like the Solomon Islands, Vanuatu and others, um, shortwave radio is really crucial. And Radio Australia provided a valuable service in a number of ways. One, it provided news about regional and world affairs that national broadcasters often couldn't cover. You know, a tiny country like Tuvalu or Vanuatu, um, their broadcasting um, corporations, although they've got excellent journalists there, just don't have the resources to cover the region, let alone global affairs. So Radio New Zealand, Radio Australia play a crucial role. But more importantly for things like disasters, when there's a cyclone, I was out on the island of Futuna um, a few years ago, a small isolated um, island, volcanic island, uh, six villages clustered around a volcano in the southern islands of Vanuatu. And people there told me that when the cyclones came, they listened to Radio Australia for cyclone warnings. So it was a widely appreciated service. And when, in 2017, uh, the ABC shut down those shortwave broadcasts, um, it was a terrible blow to an audience across Melanesia, particularly PNG, Solomon's Vanuatu. And the punchline of it, of course, was that China picked up the bandwidth. Um, China is now using the shortwave bands that Australia dumped in 2017. So it was very much a known goal, all of which, as you say, was under the watch of uh, um, Tony Abbott and then uh, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. Yes, absolutely. And uh, the Shanghai Media Group uh, are very prominent now in the region. And it's, as you say, an own goal. It's something that was easily foreseeable and yet wasn't prevented by, you know, people being very, very measly in terms of the funding arrangements and and stopping something that was very, very successful. And you've outlined there some of the content that Pacific Island nations receive through those programs and also how it's used. But what are the effects of receiving that programs? Because surely uh, when the Australian Network and Radio Australia were running, that must have actually brought Australian perspectives and Australian politics and different types of things, bringing Australia to the minds of Pacific Island nations in a very pervasive way. Uh, so I wonder what was the diplomatic or foreign policy or foreign affairs effects of a, a tool like that? Well, it's a double-edged sword in many ways. And um, I, as you mentioned at the beginning, I work for a magazine in Fiji and work alongside some really excellent Pacific journalists. And there's a concern that, in fact, larger players, be it United States, China, Australia, even New Zealand to a certain extent, crowd out the possibilities for independent Pacific media and Pacific voices in all the global challenges that we're talking about. How do you deal with China? How do you deal with climate change and global warming? How do you deal with the pandemic of violence against women across the region? Pacific Islanders want to have a say in all of these global challenges. And there's a lot of concern that simply pumping money into Australian broadcasting without doing better cooperation with their, their partners. And there's been some really interesting work done by former RA journalists like Sue Hearn and uh, Jemima Garrett to talk about an Australian media initiative um, to, to revitalise international broadcasting um, and the ALP in their recent announcement uh, of their Pacific plan seems to be picking up on this idea. But one of the things that Jemima and Sue Hearn and others stress is the need for co-productions where Australian journalists can work alongside and with Pacific journalists 
to produce content that's relevant to the audience. So Radio Australia, Australia Network TV was very popular for things like the rugby, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, sports programs. Um, I have a very good friend who loves the Wiggles and Bluey um, in Fiji. Um, mm. So there were certainly programs there. But there are other programs that weren't really relevant to you know rural populations particularly. And I think there's enormous potential as this um, soft power capacity is rebuilt to think about co-productions and drawing on the expertise of Pacific journalists who can I say know their societies, their cultures, their histories much better than your average Australian journal? Yeah. And as part of the government's Pacific pivot, instead of having the ABC provide content through the Australian Network and Radio Australia, it subsequently decided that it would announce a $17 million package to broadcast commercial television throughout the region. And that was announced in 2018. It is also part of Australia's soft power strategy. But as the Greens, for example, have pointed out, that means that it was bringing reality TV shows to the Pacific like Married at First Sight and The Bachelor. So I wonder, with that change in strategy, not just removing the um, ABC's role but then inserting a commercial role, what was the response to that change in the Pacific in general? Was was that a welcome change or is this something that wasn't particularly of interest to people in the Pacific? Well, there's been a lot of criticism of the commercialisation of, of the aid program. And I think that what you've just described, this you know, handing over money to people like Kerry Stokes and, 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 and others, is part of a bigger picture where there's been increasing um, involvement of uh, consulting firms, of contracting firms in the overseas aid program. So one of the things we saw beginning with Malcolm Turnbull, where he called for a step change in Australia's relationship with the region, concerned particularly about rising Chinese influence. And then Morrison in 2018, speaking at Laverick Army Barracks in Townsville, (laughs) quite an appropriate uh, choice for a a khaki step up, mm. um, you know, they announced this increasing focus on the Pacific Islands. So we've seen the, the budget of overseas aid cut from Africa, Middle East, from uh, South Asia and Southeast Asia, um, really gutting the program in other parts of the world to increase aid to the Pacific. But a lot of that is boomerang aid and it's come back to benefit corporate interests and these large consulting firms Um, who've done incredibly well out of some of the programs. And you only have to look at things like the Australian National Audit Office has done investigations of the uh, offshore processing centres in Papua New Guinea and Nauru, now closed on Manus Island, to see the massive amounts of money that went to corporations like Canstruct for their role in the the maintenance of the offshore processing centres. A really scandalous waste of money So while the government uh, today proudly uh, notes, and it's correct, that the age budget to the Pacific Islands has grown, it hides the fact that a lot of that money is going to Australian interests rather than uh, to really benefiting local grassroots initiatives. And more importantly, it masks the fact that over Ford estimates, our aid budget is shrinking. The aid budget is due to be down in a couple of years' time to 0.19% of gross national income. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a tiny proportion of aid. The global target is 0.7% of national income. We're down at 0.19 in the next couple of years. So we've seen under the coalition really 
although there's been a shift of resources to the Pacific, it hasn't always benefited grassroots communities. Um, and that's a significant problem, and that's widely acknowledged in the region at a time that there are major challenges, both to human security around development, around education and health, responding to the COVID pandemic, but also, more importantly, environmental security and the real challenge of climate change. Yeah, you brought up aid there. I was interested to discover that the picture in terms of where the aid is going in the Pacific is not necessarily increasing across the board for individual nations. It's a bit variable in terms of the outcomes financially. And so I saw that The Guardian was reporting that Australia's official development assistance to the Solomon Islands, for example, declined 12.6% from $179 million in 2014-15, which was the Abbott era, to $156 million in the 2021-22 budget. And so we're seeing that particularly relevant example being brought up because of the situation that has really reared its head during this election campaign, which is the security deal between the Solomon Islands and China. And the Australian government, or at least Australian government officials, had apparently been warned last August by some in the Solomon Islands parliament. And apparently the Australian government essentially did nothing or clearly not enough. And then when the draft agreement came out, the coalition government at the time, now caretaker government, they were apparently caught off guard and, you know, didn't really take it seriously. It seems that this agreement was really going to come to fruition. And now we actually have seen the Prime Minister Sogavare sign that deal with China and we saw only a couple of weeks ago media start to panic and catastrophize a little bit over China and its proximity now to Australia if it has closer involvement with the Solomon Islands. The Labor Party has said that uh, essentially this is the greatest foreign policy failure. I wonder, what is your take on this situation. Do you think it was an overreaction or is this a foreign policy disaster or can it be both at the same time? Look, personally, and from many Pacific Islanders that I speak to, the greatest foreign policy failure, uh, and it's bipartisan in Australia, is the failure to address climate change, where you can have uh, major parties uh, running for this election still talking about uh, expanding the coal industry, new coal mines in New South Wales and uh, Queensland, um, you know, the ALP uh, um, running dead in some of their seats in the Hunter Valley, for example, uh, not wanting to address the need for an urgent transition um, to, to get out of stranded assets like coal and gas. Um, you know, that's, for me, the greatest foreign policy failure. Um, the, the, the bipartisan failure in Australian policymaking to address the adverse effects of climate change for ourselves as much as for our neighbours in the Pacific who are on the climate front line. And look, the, the drop in, in funding for, for the Solomons came after 14 years of the regional assistance mission in Solomon Islands. Um, you know, between 2003 and 2017, Australia, together with other Forum Island nations, was involved in a major operation and, and more than $2.8, nearly $3 billion was spent um, uh, over that 14-year period in Solomon Islands. So it's not quite right, I think, the way the media has presented this current crisis, that people haven't been doing enough in the Solomons. 
What I'd argue, however, is that a lot of the money that was spent in the Solomon Islands under Ramsey, this regional assistance mission, was not benefiting ordinary grassroots people, but in fact flowing back like boomerang aid to Australia. And I think one of the things that the media has missed in the current debate about the security crisis is what was the effectiveness, for good or bad, of the policing programs, the law and justice programs, that were a major part of the Ramsey deployment through the Australian Federal Police, through the Australian Defence Force and so on. Um, you know, this, this, there's a lack of history in the current debate around the, the Solomon's crisis. So on both angles, I think the, the Australian media, by and large, has missed the significance of what's happening at the moment, um, both about what happened with Ramsey, where we... You know, Australia did a lot under Ramsey and put a lot of money in. The question is, was it well spent? But secondly, I, I disagree with Penny Wong. I think the greatest foreign policy failure is Australia's intransigence and resistance to the rapid decarbonisation of our economy. And that's the thing that's coming out of the Pacific. Um, just a few days ago, a group called Pacific Elders Voice, which is a grouping of former presidents, prime ministers, um, government scholars and so on, said, and I quote, the growing military tension in the Pacific region created by both China and the United States and its allies, including Australia, does little to address the real threat to the region caused by climate change. These nations have done very little to address their own greenhouse gas emissions, despite statements of intent by the nations. So the Pacific has repeatedly, for years and years and years, said that the greatest security threat in the region is climate change. You know, in 2018, the forum leaders signed the Boy Declaration uh, in Nauru. This was a declaration that said, and I quote, the greatest single threat to the well-being, livelihoods and security of Pacific peoples is climate change. So it's not just a threat to human security, to the livelihoods and well-being, to the environment, but it's also to national security. And I think what we're seeing, you know, the debate that should be brewing in, in this election campaign is how much the failure to address climate change is challenging regional security in the broader sense of the term. Excellent points, Nick. And um, I wanted to draw in now some of the other parties' policies relating to aid, given that we've just been talking broadly about that. So Labor, as you point out very clearly and, and fairly, has really not a particularly strong policy on climate, given that they're not stopping the building of coal and gas plants, among many other things. They have said, though, in their Pacific plan that they've just announced recently that they will increase official development assistance to Pacific countries by $525 million over four years and the new funding is going to support bilateral and regional aid and development projects in Pacific countries and Timor-Leste. And then in terms of the Greens policy, which some listening may be interested in, they said that they actually wanted to increase aid to 0.7% of gross national income, which, as you said earlier, is actually the global target. So it seems like they have some very ambitious goals in the Pacific, but also more broadly in relation to uh, foreign policy. I wonder... Could you perhaps evaluate for us some of the key policies that Labor have put forward that we have actually been referencing, including the Indo-Pacific Broadcasting Strategy, 
their commitment to boost aid, their climate infrastructure financing partnerships. You know, do you think that this plan to increase aid, to increase funding to the Pacific is enough? And is it the right kind of policy? Look, there's a, a significant change in rhetoric. And I think people in the Pacific are looking closely at, at what Australian countries are offering, uh, what Australian parties are offering in this election, because it's so important. And it was striking that when she announced um, Labor's plan for a stronger Pacific family, sorry, I hate that jargon of family, but anyway, Penny Wong did say, quote, nothing is more central to the security and economies of the Pacific than climate change. So that's a fundamental shift in, in rhetoric, even as, as she's talking about the Solomons crisis and so on. And as you mentioned, Labor has made pledges in this, um, this plan around a number of areas, um, um, around international broadcasting, um, particularly around labour mobility and also a new Pacific migration program, talking about allowing a few thousand people uh, from the Pacific, which will be warmly welcomed in the, in the region. There's a Pacific Climate Infrastructure Financing Partnership that talks about clean energy infrastructure projects in the Pacific, which is um, building on work that's already begun in many countries, making the transition from diesel fuel electricity generation to renewables. And uh, the ALP has also offered to co-host a COP, Conference of the Parties, you know, these global uh, climate talks that are held every year, that um, they have an Australia-Pacific COP following on Fiji hosting uh, in COP23. So there's a number of things that I think will be warmly welcomed in the Pacific. My concern is that it's a bit like the, the Rudd government when it came in after the lost decade of the Howard years. Um, Rudd picked, frankly, the low-hanging fruit um, and, and took steps that were warmly welcomed across the Pacific um, around things like setting up the pilot scheme for the seasonal worker program, bringing uh, Pacific Islanders to Australia to work in the horticulture industry, uh, a major achievement under, under the Rudd government. Um, the Stolen Generations apology was very warmly welcomed in uh, countries, particularly those that Australia had colonised in the past, like Papua New Guinea. There was a, a ratification of the Kyoto Protocols. Uh, so a number of steps that were taken early on in the, the Rudd period in 2007-08 were, were very much welcomed. However, after that, a lot of the momentum faltered. And I think that the Labor Party coming in this time will face a similar structural problem um, where there needs to be a, a, a rapid transition in Australia's economy around um, addressing the fossil fuel industry and the subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. And um, there's not a lot of sign from people like Richard Miles, the deputy leader, that they're willing to, to undertake that sort of work. So while I think that there will be some really good initiatives in the early days of a Labor government, presuming they win on the 21st of May, there's a real structural challenge about how rapidly Australia can make the transition. The other feature of the ALP policy is that there's a lot of focus on military and security issues, talk about military training, setting up a new Pacific Defence uh, Training Centre and so on. And that's still very much framed within the new Cold War attitudes that have brought us AUKUS, the uh, Australia-United Kingdom-United States Agreement, um, that is, uh, you know, once again, uh, raising issues that are going to confront uh, um, our relationship with Pacific Island countries, particularly around nuclear issues. Um, Australia's proposal to purchase uh, either US or UK uh, nuclear submarines 
goes very much against the anti-nuclear sentiment that you find across the uh, Pacific Islands. And if uh, Labor continues with AUKUS policies that really integrate us further into US warfighting strategies, particularly nuclear warfighting strategies, there'll be a lot of resistance in the Pacific Islands to that militarisation, given that the Pacific has has still got very strong anti-nuclear sentiment. Yeah, that actually reminds me that Prime Minister Sogavare said that they and the region, quote, should have been consulted to ensure that this AUKUS treaty is transparent since it will affect the Pacific family by allowing nuclear submarines in Pacific waters. And this was his speech, which was quite heated, essentially saying that Australia had been very hypocritical in its outcry around the Solomon Islands and its sovereign decision to enter into a security agreement with China. But you mentioned there, AUKUS, that is um, an area where it seems Labor is doubling down and is seeking to boost that agreement with a $1.2 billion defence research agency. So it seems that they will be proceeding with the AUKUS partnership, given that they've announced a new policy, a substantially new new policy around it. But I also wanted to point out to those listening that I did go to the Liberal Party's website. You can do it yourself liberal.org.au and I looked through uh, as best I could their election policies and I couldn't actually find anything relating to foreign policy, particularly foreign aid and the Pacific Island nations. So unfortunately, I can't really say what their policy is except what they delivered in the March budget. But there is obviously a very strong focus there on national security and defence on the Liberal Party's policy platform but absolutely nothing that I could find in the Pacific Island area. So I just wanted to note that glaring hole and uh, and thought that was also kind of quite telling of what a future coalition government might do in terms of the Pacific. Do you think that they are seeking or will seek to respond to the criticisms that people have made in terms of their approach to the relationship with the Pacific? Well, I think there's there's terrible problems for the coalition if they were to be re-elected, which seems unlikely on current polling, but who knows? We'll see. Um, One of the problems is that the coalition is quite divided on climate policy. So you have people in the National Party, um, even in the midst of the election campaign, um, knocking, you know, the question of net zero by 2050, whereas Pacific Islands are saying we need net zero by 2035. Mm. Um, There's a, a real, real push around this question, and that's a false discussion. You know, it's clear, and you can hear this from developing countries all over the world, that there needs to be a, an urgent and rapid transition towards renewable energy, um, a shift away from fossil fuels, and you don't see any coherence in the in the coalition around this area, um, despite their pledge of a you know a, a two billion dollar climate solutions fund for farmers and small businesses and and so on. Um, they're not really addressing this this question, and that's a, a fundamental problem. I think what's interesting about AUKUS, too, is that it's not just about nuclear submarines. It's about technology transfer. It's about cyber warfare. It's about uh, rare earths and and exploitation of uh, strategic minerals and metals. Um, It's a much broader agenda, and I think you'll find a a certain amount of bipartisan support for that agenda um, amongst conservative members of the Labor Party as well as the coalition. Um, So you're going to see... an ongoing engagement this. And one of the problems is that, you know, this creates tensions between Australia's um, global interests and its regional ones. 
And we saw this, for example, with the relationship with France. One of the features of the AUKUS uh, agreement was the rupturing of the strategic partnership between um, Australia and France that had built up since the Rudd days. You know, under the Rudd government, uh, they, they signed in 2012 a joint statement of strategic partnership. Um, Julie Bishop uh, in 2017 did a, an enhanced statement of uh, strategic partnership. Um, 2018, when President Macron visited Australia, um, Malcolm Turnbull signed a joint vision statement. And over time, officials and ministers were putting teeth onto this relationship with France. And there is a bipartisan commitment to this. Richard Miles, the deputy leader of the ALP the other day, just said, France is a Pacific country. Now, the problem is that the people in New Caledonia in the independence movement say France is a European country. It's not a Pacific country. It's a colonial power in the Pacific. And I think an incoming Australian uh, Labor Party government will face a strategic dilemma. Do they rebuild relationships with France and newly re-elected President Emmanuel Macron of their, you know, role working together in the Indo-Pacific against China? Or do they listen to the voices from our Melanesian neighbours, Papua New Guinea, Vanuatu, Solomons, Fiji, who are working with the Kanak independence movement um, on decolonisation to move New Caledonia to a new political status? And this issue is going to blow up um, after the French government's elected in mid-year um, with National Assembly elections. Um, and and uh, whoever wins the Australian election is going to face this dilemma. Do they side with France as a colonial power in the Pacific or do they sign with our Melanesian neighbours to support self-determination and the rights of the Indigenous Kanak population? So this gap is going to continue. I think there's some great initiatives being outlined in the Greens and Labor Party, even some in the Liberal Party policies, but the bottom line is that there are structural questions about you know, Australia's positioning against China in the region and seeking allies through Britain, United States, and to a certain extent France, um, lining up against China, are they going to sacrifice the interests of our neighbours in that broader picture? And I think mm -hmm. that challenge remains whether it's Labor or Liberal who wins the election. And Nick, just finally, the independents, particularly the teal independents who are running under the Climate 200 funding, obviously they're funded by a number of other community groups uh, that are local to them. They have certainly put climate change as a central policy for them and they said that should they potentially have the balance of power that they would be using that as a bargaining tool for whoever would form government. And the Greens, of course, has a similar position being very strong on climate change historically and currently. I wonder, do you see that as any potential hope on the issue of climate change, given that throughout this discussion you have been representing the Pacific very well in sharing again and again just what is their priority, which is climate change. Do you think at this election, if people had the option of looking at the policies of the independents and the Greens, that their policies would benefit the Pacific and that that may be one way of actually forcing a greater action on climate change? Look, I think it's really important that, that climate is, is regarded as a central plank of, of, you know, the policy that people should be voting on. I think, however, it's important to recognise this shift is underway. And I'll just give you one quote to finish up. Last week, a man put out a statement and he said, Australia continues to ignore the very plain facts that climate change represents the single greatest threat to the livelihood, security and well-being of Pacific people. 
and this in turn has huge security implications for Australia. Pacific Island leaders have clearly and repeatedly identified climate change as the greatest threat to their people's future security. Now, the person who said that was Chris Barry, who was a Navy Admiral in the Royal Australian Navy, now retired. He's the former Chief of Defence for the Australian Defence Force. So here you have a senior military man, now retired, but willing to speak out together with other retired uh, military and defence officials to say that they recognise the strategic importance of climate change, even in their own framework, even in their national security framework, forgetting about the human impacts on the ground. And that sort of change is happening radically. And I think the Solomons-China deal has really brought this issue to the head in the middle of the elections. What are the major threats to security and what range of assistance technical assistance, finance, research, people-to-people engagement should Australia be putting into those major security challenges. And so I think it's really crucial that Australia listens to the voices coming from a range of institutions within Australia and in our neighbourhood to shift the balance of resources away from nuclear submarines Mm. and to more engagement with the concrete security challenges that are facing our nearest neighbours. That's the way to build Australian security, not more submarines. And I think this is a a really crucial turning point and this election will be very significant as we move forward to the 21st of May. Yeah. Well, it's very fortunate that as part three of our election policy series, we are covering climate change, despite the fact that barely anyone else is and many politicians are reluctant to be talking about it at the moment. Nick, it is just so wonderful to have spoken with you about this topic, which, as we can tell, requires a great historical knowledge as well as political knowledge. So I really do appreciate your time today and thank you so much for talking all things foreign affairs, particularly in the context of this election and with a focus on the Pacific region. Thanks very much, Amy, and thanks for taking the time. It's a pleasure. I've just been speaking with Nick McClellan, who is Pacific Affairs Correspondent for Inside Story. You should absolutely read his pieces, which are up on their website, free to read. And he's also a correspondent for Islands Business Magazine in Fiji, which is also an excellent publication, which you can check out online. And we've just been talking about foreign policy as part of this federal election campaign with a focus on the Pacific region. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins. And it is my absolute pleasure to welcome on to the show Louisa Lim, who is a journalist and an author and also a lecturer at the University of Melbourne. Louisa is the author of a previous book called The People's Republic of Amnesia, Tiananmen Revisited, which was shortlisted for the Orwell Prize and the Helen Bernstein Book Award for Excellence in Journalism. She's also in her past covered both China and Hong Kong for over a decade as a correspondent for the BBC, NPR, and she's also reported for a range of news outlets like the New York Times, the Washington Post and The Guardian. And very relevant for our conversation is that Louisa Lim was raised in Hong Kong 
She's currently living in Australia, though, as you will read in her new book, um, she certainly has lived in both countries for a very long time and back and forth as well, obviously disrupted by the pandemic. But today we're going to be talking to Louisa Lim about a new book that she's written, Indelible City, Dispossession and Defiance in Hong Kong, which pretty much speaks for itself. And I also should mention Louisa is co-host of a fabulous podcast, called The Little Red Podcast, which I also recommend. And I welcome Louisa now. Hi there. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you on the show. And uh, I've always really loved your previous work. So I'm glad to be able to delve into your new book. I wanted to first ask uh, more of a methodological question, because you do talk about all the research that you've done throughout the book, um, looking at a whole range of very important figures and also some primary source material that it appears hasn't been used before. So I wondered, what was the process of even putting together this book, doing the interviews, doing the research? How long a project was this for you? Oh, it was a much longer project than it was meant to be. <laughs> <laughs> Originally, when I started working on it, I thought, oh, wait, you know, a really nice quick book. And you know how these things are, these projects kind of balloon out of control. And I started that eight years ago. So it's take, taken me eight full years. And I, part of it was the amount of research that I ended up doing. You know, it wasn't the nice, simple book that I wanted to write. It just kind of kept growing and growing. Part of it was just how Hong Kong's situation changed over that time. When I started writing it, it was actually even before the Umbrella Movement of 2014. And then there was the Umbrella Movement where people occupied the streets for three months, calling for more democracy. Then in 2019, there were massive protests where over two million people at one point took to the streets. And then national security legislation in 2020. So it kept changing. Mm. Um, and that sort of changed the finished product. You address that at the beginning of the book, saying that you've had to leave out some names to protect identities given the national security legislation that is in force. And it's been noticeable on my side as an interviewer that I now haven't been interviewing people living in Hong Kong because the risk is so great to them, depending on what they might say, certainly about the political situation. And I wonder if we start from the present point right now, what is the situation in Hong Kong in terms of the ability to have a level of free speech, which clearly did exist, but it's been progressively eroded. And now we are in a very kind of dire situation, it seems. Yeah, it really is a dire situation. So this national security legislation was imposed on Hong Kong, pretty much sight unseen in June 2020. And this outlaws secession, subversion, collusion with foreign powers and terrorism. But these offences are not really defined at all. And the law has been applied really broadly. So um, since it was introduced, I think at least 183 people have been arrested for national security crimes. And a third of those have been um, speech crimes, which is really a category that didn't exist in Hong Kong before. And they can be really obscure things. You know, some people were arrested after having banners or stickers with protest slogans 
that had been chanted by millions of people all through 2019, but are now seen as not acceptable under the new legislation. And just a couple of weeks ago, there were six people who were arrested by national security police for clapping in a courtroom, which was seen as a seditious activity, possibly seditious. You know, I think there's just a great deal of fear. Nobody knows where the red lines are anymore. You know, people even talk about a red sea because the red lines are multiplying so fast that they're kind of out of control. And the situation is so dire that actually this week, the Foreign Correspondents Club in Hong Kong cancelled its Press Freedom Awards. And it said the reason that it gave was because it said it didn't know whether, you know, this could potentially violate national security legislation. So, you know, I think that's a really tragic sign of just how bad things have got. Yeah, and it makes life really hard for journalists who are still in Hong Kong. We did see the Apple Daily essentially close down, and that was a really shocking moment in the you know, history of the press there. Uh, what is left in terms of the journalists who remain? Well, I mean, there were a lot of really fantastic, aggressive, professional journalists in Hong Kong. But uh, some of the best publications have shut down, you know, Apple Daily, um, Stand News and Citizen News are digital publications and they've all um, shut down. And not only have they shut down, but journalists from Apple Daily and from other publications are being arrested. So a veteran journalist called Alan Au, who actually teaches journalism, was arrested a couple of weeks ago. So there's a great deal of fear among journalists and even after the um, Press Freedom Awards were cancelled, there's a petition going round, and I just, I was just looking at it before we spoke, and I was really struck by the fact that a lot of people wouldn't sign their actual names to it. It just says, a Hong Kong journalist, a Hong Kong journalist who used to work for Stan News. And, you know, when people are too scared to put their actual names to a petition about press freedom, that's really, really... Uh, so, such a tragic situation and particularly given that Hong Kong has been a society with such a thriving press in Asia it's had one of the strongest local press and and now that's all sort of being reined in yeah and I remember you were writing in the book about your previous book the People's Republic of Amnesia which you were doing very carefully and privately in China, in mainland China, when you were over there and, you know, bringing hard drives across to Hong Kong. So clearly, you know, you're aware of the risks in mainland China, but now that you've written this book, do you feel that there's any risk for you if you were to go back? I mean, at this point, I probably won't go back to Hong Kong, unfortunately, partly because of this current book, but also partly because of the last book we've seen the organisers of the Tiananmen Vigil in Hong Kong. So, you know, Hong Kong's the only place on Chinese soil where in the past they've been able to remember Tiananmen and what happened in 1989. And the organisers of that vigil have been arrested. And so at the moment I, I wouldn't go back to Hong Kong, which is really, you know, it's, re it's really uh, a huge blow for me. But at the same time, not being in Hong Kong does allow me the freedom to write what I want to write and to say what I want to say. And 
you know, I think not having to think, am I going to be able to go back or not really in a way it, it does liberate you. So I've, you know, I've written this book, like my last book, you know, I, I wrote it, the consideration of whether I would go back or not was something that I kind of took off the table when I was writing the book. I decided that I would write the books, I will write the books that I want to write, regardless of whether that then, you know, stops me from going back to those places. Yeah. And you talk about your identity throughout the book as well, being a Hong Konger and your background, your family background. And I wanted to talk about that because I was really interested in your family's history with Hong Kong as well, which was really interesting, not only your immediate family, like your father and your mother, but even further back and its relationship to the British occupation or colonization of Hong Kong. Yeah, that's right. I mean, my background is, so my father's Chinese, my mother's English, um, and I grew up in Hong Kong and actually um, that sort of mixed identity in a way, it's a, it's a privilege, but it's also been really helpful for me in writing a book because in a way I was both outsider and insider to all these worlds. And actually there's a quite a long history of mixed race people in Hong Kong. You would think it would be an easy place to be mixed race, but actually it has quite a history of erasure when it comes to mixed race people. So that was interesting to look at. And I, you know, I, I've been lucky because my parents themselves were not really constrained by sort of racial boundaries, you know, the way they, they got married and the way they behaved in Hong Kong um, was quite unusual in a way. They really sort of stepped out of the roles expected of them. But yeah, I do have a longer family history with Hong Kong. I mean, my mother's family were soldiers and policemen. They were basically part of the British Imperial project. You know, one of Hong Kong's earlier governors was related quite distantly to me. And you know, when I was growing up, we were always quite proud of that. We had, I never really had bothered to think or look about at what he actually did. And you know, it was only when I started researching the book and I started looking up his history and I saw him being described as the most racist governor in Hong Kong's history. And I found out that he'd had a pony called Yellow Skin and that he had passed legislation that basically um, reserved a certain part of Hong Kong for Europeans, for white skinned people, you know, basically kind of apartheid legislation. And he was really against mixed race children, even attending school with white children, you know, talking about Chinese as semi-civilized savages. And that, you know, it was really shocking to me. Yeah, just how closely my own family had been involved in, you know, not just the colonial project, but some of the worst parts of it. And, you know, going back further still, my mother's relations, you know, were involved in the they were in the expeditionary forces that were involved in um, the second opium war so you know my i mean my family has played a part in the you know not just the colonial administration of hong kong but even very indirectly in its acquisition so so yeah that was all something that i had kind of known but didn't really know that much about until i started to write the book it was really fascinating to read about. And also really interesting to me was 
because your mother is English. So you said it was quite controversial at the time for white women to marry Chinese men. And of course, today it's not as controversial, but it is still quite rare and, and less common than the other way around. It's kind of more common to see white men and Chinese women. And, you know, I wondered about that situation and also when you're talking about being Eurasian um, and you were talking about Eurasia just before, you say uh, in the book, I think it was Eurasians had cancelled themselves, uh, but also it seems that even Hong Kongers had been their Cantonese language had kind of been cancelled by Mandarin speakers. So, yeah, I wonder if you could pick up any of those threads and, and talk a little bit more about them. Yeah, so my parents had moved to Hong Kong when I was very, very young because they had thought it would be a really good place to raise a mixed-race family. And then they got there and they were quite, I think, taken aback to find the level of discrimination and even when I was young, there was one incident where my mother and I went to a tea shop because it was a really hot day and we were thirsty and we were just sitting at the table drinking tea and there were some old grannies, tiny old ladies sitting on the other side of this big round table and they started throwing tea leaves out of the teapot at me. And, you know, I just couldn't understand it. It was so confusing. And my mother made me leave, which made me really annoyed because I hadn't had my drink or anything. And afterwards she said, oh, they didn't want to see you. They didn't want to look at you. And I couldn't understand it. And I, you know, then she had to say, well, you know, your appearance offended them because you're not, you know, you're not Chinese and you're not white either. You're mixed. And that really stuck with me. And when I started looking at, that history, I discovered that, you know, that kind of discrimination against mixed race people really went back a long way. So although there was intermarriage, the children, um, other mixed race children, you know, back in the 19th century, they didn't like to identify as mixed race. They would normally pick one way or the other, either live a Chinese life with a Chinese name, wear Chinese clothing, including the pigtail during the Qing dynasty, or lead a more, you know, European life. There were some exceptions and people who kind of flitted between both, but it was quite unusual to the extent that they introduced into the census this category of Eurasian people and the numbers went up and then they went right down because nobody wanted to even admit to being um, Eurasian. So that was the kind of cancellation that I was talking about. And, you know, growing up in Hong Kong, it did, it was still a factor. And my parents did find they were um, kind of outcasts from both the sort of European community and the Chinese community. So they joined this, <laughs> this club of similar outcasts. So they were all these mixed race couples uh, with Chinese men and Caucasian or white women. Originally they were called the Mix-Up Club, but then they realized they sounded like a swingers club. <laughs> so they changed the name to the M Club quite quickly after that. <laughs> and you know, it actually still exists to this day. Wow. Yeah. Um, so there are a lot of mixed race kids in Hong Kong now, and I think the stigma is, is far, far less, which is, is necessary. Yeah, absolutely. And one part uh, I was also really interested in, in terms of Hong Kong people, obviously they speak Cantonese predominantly, and it's something that you said you didn't really have a, a great foundation in yourself. You had a better, you know, stronger foundation in Mandarin, but that you did take up 
calligraphy as well um, as a, a kind of practice. And I wondered if you could talk about not only learning Cantonese and you were talking about the kind of inherent differences between Cantonese and Mandarin and how that almost reflected kind of a cultural difference or, or seemed to liberate people in Hong Kong more the more that they spoke Cantonese. I wonder if you could share a little bit about what you learned about the Cantonese language, especially in contrast to Mandarin. Yeah, I mean, Cantonese is a really, it's a very difficult language to learn, actually. There are lots of tones and people don't even necessarily agree how many tones there are. And it's quite casual in a way, but also there are a lot of rules. (laughs) So it's quite hard to learn. And it's really a, a, a big identity marker for Hong Kongers. It's really something that sets them out from northerners is the language that they, they speak. And, you know, I think part of that separate identity is, is rooted in even the way the language sounds. You know, it's it's a super sweary language, which I love. <laughs> you know, there, there's uh, people swear an awful lot. And, you know, I realized this when I was even reading the audiobook of my book and there was like six swear words, quite bad swear words, in the first three pages, I think. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, that's very much in the ca- character of Hong Kong. It's a very kind of emotional language as well. There's a lot of plosives, there's a lot of emotion, there's a lot of exclamations. It's very exclamatory, declamatory language. And it's quite different from Mandarin, which can be quite kind of regimented and quite kind of, you know, formulaic. Cantonese isn't like that. Uh, And Cantonese speakers will actually even argue that uh, classical Chinese is more similar to Cantonese than it is to Mandarin. I mean, Mandarin was really kind of what we think of as standard Mandarin now is really kind of invented as a language to unify the whole of China. So there, there is an argument that uh, classical Chinese is, is in some ways closer to Cantonese and it does use sort of certain participles and ancient characters that, that are no longer used in Mandarin. It's a different writing. Mandarin uses simplified characters and Cantonese uses traditional characters which are far more complicated and difficult to write. So yeah, it's quite a difficult language to learn. <laughs> I think I've only really started to learn Mandarin and even I found that difficult. So I can't really imagine trying Cantonese, but it does sound like a wonderful language. And I love that you've got all the characters there and then the English translation in the book, because as you say, it seems to kind of lend itself to protest language in a way. You know, you saying it's explicit, it's declamatory, it's something that really seems like it's got a lot of force behind it. And it's also very clever. Absolutely. And when there were protests in 2019, it was really interesting. One of the things that protesters did was they invented new characters, new Chinese written words. Um, And sometimes it was sort of melding two words. So there was one which was something black police, which kind of means triad, which is, you know, sort of criminal police, this kind of thing. But other words as well. And, you know, that was interesting because that kind of act of linguistic innovation is something that would not happen on on mainland China where language is so regimented, it's controlled in a way. Cantonese isn't like that. And language is throughout this entire book, especially because of one of the main characters in the book, the King of Kowloon. 
And I was really interested given my background in art history, because I was not aware of him. I am aware of, you know, the Western early graffiti artists and street artists, but he really is the original, isn't he? I mean, I think he is, you know, people, I think he used Banksy before there was Banksy, Keith Haring before there was Keith Haring. It's just that he didn't get famous in the same way. Although, you know, now his work is quite valuable. Um, there was a scooter painted with his calligraphy that sold for a quarter of a million US dollars. So, you know, his work is worth quite a lot of money, but I don't think he has that same sort of international recognition. And one of the reasons is because he writes in Chinese, he writes Chinese characters. And I think it's, it's harder for Westerners or non-Chinese speakers to appreciate and understand that and to understand the significance. And, you know, actually his writing is pretty terrible. <laughs> you know, he only had two years of school and his writing is really ugly. It's lopsided, it's wonky, it's not beautiful and harmonious and balanced in the way that calligraphy is supposed to be. But, you know, to Western eyes, Chinese characters you know, maybe it's harder to see that Chinese character, you know, it just looks like gibberish. And I think to a lot of, even to local people, a lot of his writing looked like gibberish because it was quite uh, hard to understand. So he was an old disabled trash sorter who um, many people thought was completely mad, mentally incompetent. And he believed that the peninsula of Kowloon, which is opposite Hong Kong, um, had been stolen from its fa his family when it was given to the British after the Second Opium War. And so he spent 50 years writing on the land that he believed was his, sort of claiming his dominion. And he would write his family tree, sort of 21 generations of names, and he would sometimes write the places that they'd lost, and he would often write really sweary things like, fuck the queen in the ass. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, a lot of Hong Kong people didn't like it either because it looked quite crazy. It was really rude and sweary. And, you know, it, w it was not necessarily beautiful to look at. Yeah. Well, I did like that there was a photograph, at least in the book, of him with his, you know, calligraphy. And he just looked, I mean, I loved his smile. He seemed to have a real spirit and vibrancy to him, like an inner vibrancy. He was just, to me, such an interesting character. And on so many different levels, you know, I think I was interested in him because the themes that he was writing about were the themes of territory and sovereignty and dispossession and loss, which are right central, absolutely central to Hong Kong's political crisis. But he was talking about them generations before anybody else, so long before everyone mm -hmm. else that people thought he was crazy. Um, so that interested me. You know, I grew up with his words. And to me, it was a part of Hong Kong. They were words that changed the way that our city looked and they would appear and disappear because he would write in certain places. He had certain places that he particularly liked. You know, there was a certain flyover that he saw of as almost like a, a shrine or a holy site. And he kept going back to the same place because the government would wash away his work or they would paint over it. And he would just keep returning to the same places over and over again. So there was that kind of real 
element of surprise that he was, you know, his work would be there, then it'd be gone, then it'd pop up on another wall. And then, you know, so it was kind of everywhere. It was really a part of the city, but it was also drawing your attention to those bits of street furniture that you never notice because he was very exacting in the sites that he chose to paint on. He just chose these bits of the city that you wouldn't normally notice. So, you know, the flyovers, the electricity boxes, post boxes, lamp posts, you know, everything that he chose to paint on were sites owned by the government. <laughs> he didn't paint on private property at all. So he was, you know, very exacting in that. And so, you know, that interested me, but then the significance that other people attached to him was also very fascinating to me. You know, he became this cultural icon. Poets wrote poems to him, you know, rap singers sang about him, as did lounge singers, jazz singers. Artists did tribute work to him. You know, his work was on fashion collections, both sort of haute couture, these amazingly beautiful collections, but also on sort of doona covers and slippers and underwear, um, whiskey bottles, sneakers. It, it was everywhere and it was something that really kind of um, was used as a shorthand for Hong Kong. So he sort of became a real symbol of Hong Kong and like a meme, you know, I think he had all kinds of different significance depending on what kind of what point in time you looked at him. So that was another reason why I was so interested in him. So I started by tracking down all the people that knew him to talk to them and just find out a little bit more about this man. And then when I did that, I realized only really afterwards that he had kind of led me to some of the most interesting of Hong Kong's thinkers. And, you know, a lot of them were people who became intensely politically sensitive after the protests. But because I've been talking to them for such a long time, I didn't realize until afterwards that the sort of people who were interested in him were the people who were already thinking about these issues. So, you know, he was almost like my guide in writing this book. Yeah, it really does uh, shine through because he's really weaved throughout the book in a very, you know, relevant way. I wanted to go to the joint declaration and then move a little bit ahead to some of the protests. So I was really interested in the archival research and, you know, the, the books that you had found that seemed to have been untouched almost around what was going on behind the scenes in terms of this joint declaration agreement between China and Britain and the negotiations, obviously, in terms of um, Britain handing back Hong Kong to China and um, the one country, two systems agreement. And I wonder if you could take us through some of the things that you thought were particularly interesting and revealing about what happened, especially the lack of agency that Hong Kongers had during that time. Yeah, absolutely. So, so there was this agreement called the Joint Declaration that was negotiated between China and Britain. And that was the agreement that returned Hong Kong to China in 1997. But it was negotiated in 19, between 1982 to 1984. And Hong Kongers played no part in that process. They weren't present at the negotiations. They had no seat at the table. There was no vote, no referendum. Uh, no way for Hong Kongers really to, you know, there was no mechanism by which they could approve the agreement. And I had always been interested in how that had happened. Um, but most of the main players 
have already died. You know, I guess, again, it's part of that erasure of Hong Kong voices from Hong Kong's own history. The fact that Hong Kong's fate was really settled without any Hong Kongers being part of it. So I was trying to think about how to write about that. And then I discovered this archive of interviews that um, was being held at a library in Oxford. And these were interviews done by a Hong Kong political scientist, Steve Zhang, in um, the 1980s and 90s. And he had interviewed, you know, dozens of really important figures, you know, some governors, some senior colonial civil servants. And then this group of people called the unofficials. And the agreement was that all of these interviews would be held for 30 years from the last incident described before they could be released. And this was because all of these people had signed the Official Secrets Act, so they weren't allowed to speak about, you know, these issues. And so by the time that the interviews were released, many of these people had died without ever really having spoken publicly. Actually, some of the interviews were almost sort of released by mistake because I, I had been really interested in them. So, I, But you had to go to Oxford to, to read them in the reading room. <laughs> and um, I've been a couple of times and it was really sort of logistically quite hard when you live in Australia having to go to Oxford and read the documents in a particular space. And I've been a couple of times and then I went to have lunch with Steve and I showed him the list of interviews. And he had done them such a long time ago, he could hardly remember anything about them. But he said, I don't think that's right. No, I'm sure I interviewed some other people too. And he named a couple of names. So I went back to Oxford and I said to them, I, you know, I don't think this list is complete. Can you go away and look? And they came back and they just kept adding to the list. And it's like, oh, no, we did find some more. Oh, you yeah, know, we're just putting them on the shelves now. So that's, <laughs> wow. that's why I'm quite, I'm quite confident that although some of them have been written about, some of them hadn't until yeah. that time. And there were these really extraordinary interviews because these people had been unable to speak in their lifetime. So they'd really unburden themselves to Steve and they'd really, you know, spoken so emotionally and I hadn't expected that you know some of these people were men that I remembered from my childhood in Hong Kong and they were always kind of very tight-lipped and very kind of honorable and always doing the right thing and saying the right thing and then when you read these interviews you realize that they were in such turmoil and anguish because they had been party to all this stuff that was happening behind the scenes that they hadn't been able to share and they'd been really unhappy with the joint declaration, but they'd had to sort of publicly fall in line and stand behind it and even sort of sell it to the population, even though they, they themselves were not happy with it. And through these interviews, you could see how they'd really fought the British. They'd want, wanted many more safeguards to protect Hong Kong. They had thought that the British didn't understand how to negotiate. Uh, when they went to London to see Margaret Thatcher, you know, she was just astonishingly racist. She talked about the Chinese leaders as savages. And they themselves had been subject to an extraordinary amount of racism from uh, British MPs. And it was a whole kind of other story than the official narrative. So, you know, all the way through the book, what I've wanted to do is to restore Hong Kong voices to the historical record, to just... Um, and this was one episode where I really felt that um, the Hong Kong voice was had been missing. And, you know, the really tragic thing about it is 
the things that they were worried about, the things that they warned about, the things they even went to the Chinese leader, Deng Xiaoping, to ask for help with. These are all the things that have now happened to Hong Kong. So, you know, the sort of counter question is, if Britain had listened to them, how different would Hong Kong be now? You know, because they had wanted safeguards to ensure that China followed the agreement that it signed up to. And the British had kind of quite airily said, oh, no, China wouldn't want to lose face. China wouldn't wouldn't want to lose face in front of the international community. But in fact, you know, from what we've seen in the last couple of years, China's bulldozed through the joint declaration. It just decided that the joint declaration was no longer valid and sort of discarded it. And because there were no safeguards, there was no monitoring body, there was no sort of redress for violations, there was nothing that that anyone could do. So it's in in you know looking back now, it, it's you know it was actually quite painful to see how accurate their warnings were. And also, as part of that story, you interviewed Christopher Patton, who's now a baron, at the University of Melbourne when he was visiting. And I was interested as well in in that question you asked him where you were asking if more attention had been paid to the Hong Kong advisors like S.Y. Chung, would it have made a difference to the outcome? And he said, I think it might have done actually. Whenever anybody behaved as though Hong Kong should be more central to the issues or the interests of Hong Kong should be addressed more openly, the Percy Craddocks and so on moved in very rapidly to squash the idea. So I guess it's kind of heartbreaking looking back to think that there's almost a sliding doors moment where something could have made a significant difference to our current situation, you know, in the last 10 years or so. Yeah, it really is. And I was really interested that he gave that answer because, you know, Chris Patton was Hong Kong's last governor. He was the person who literally handed Hong Kong back to China. And... Um, you know, he was unusual as a governor because he was, he's a politician, not a civil servant. But I actually wasn't really expecting him to say that. I thought that he might defend the conduct of the British in some way. But he really didn't. He, he said, you know, he thought that it might have been different had someone listened to the warnings of the unofficials. But I think what came through so clearly was the agreement to hand Hong Kong back was really driven by political expediency. Both Britain and China wanted this sealed as quickly as possible, and they really weren't that concerned about Hong Kongers and what would happen to them. And now, you know, now Hong Kong is in this situation where China has, you know, discarded the joint declaration. Tens of thousands of Hong Kongers are leaving every month. In recent months, more and more, you know, 50,000 people left in the first two weeks of March alone. And it's really sad because what was one of the world's great cities is really being transformed before our eyes. But um, I guess for me, it was just important to try and restore those voices because I do think that absence of any... Hong Kong voices and Hong Kong faces from Hong Kong history is such an omission, you know. Hong Kong's history has really been written for it by these successive sovereign powers. You know, I really wanted to try and 
look at Hong Kong's story from a Hong Kong perspective. And I think it's important to do that, even if it does raise these sort of really, really painful moments. Yeah, it does raise painful moments and it also moments um, of questioning, certainly yourself questioning your role as a journalist, but also as a Hong Konger and someone with a great fondness and clear allegiance with Hong Kong uh, and the people of Hong Kong, especially during the 2019 protests against the extradition bill, which was something we covered on the show a lot with Anthony Dapperin, who was over in Hong Kong and still is. And you open the book talking about the moments where you're with these guerrilla protesters on the top of buildings, painting these massive banners with calligraphy, you know, with clear protest sayings and mottos and, you know, thinking about your role. And, and then it comes up once more again and again when you're participating in the marches, then you become a journalist in the second march and, you know, you, you get targeted. So I wonder, could you talk about that identity, the, the, the kind of questioning of identity as a Hong Konger, but also as a journalist and your role and, and how you experienced that 2019 protest movement, because it was a really interesting tension that you seem to have to grapple with. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, to be honest, I didn't really want to write about myself at all. Originally, <laughs> I wanted to write a really kind of stand back book where I didn't ever play a role, you know, traditional journalistic book where I didn't really play a role in it. And it just became really obvious very early on that that wasn't going to be possible, that it was, you know, when a place has shaped you so much, you can't really remove <laughs> that place from you or yourself from that place, you know, to find that distance to do that. And then not only was it not possible, but I, I found that I didn't want to. You know, I think the traditional role of the journalist as the outsider, as someone who stands on the sidelines and writes these sort of dispassionate dispatches was quite problematic for me in Hong Kong, um, particularly because when I was there in the protests, watching what was happening and then to read about the coverage the next day, I often found I couldn't recognize the scenes that I'd been seeing because, you know, those people who were doing that kind of dispassionate standback journalism would go to the government sources and they would quote police saying there were riots and you know all this kind of thing and you know if you've been on the streets you would not have seen riots you would have seen you know policemen assaulting people but that wasn't written about and so I really had difficulties with doing that and I think you know they're, they're, they're the same difficulties I think in a way Ukraine has slightly shifted the equation for journalists because Russia's behavior has been so uh, sort of obviously in violation of all the ethical tenets that it's become more acceptable and there might also be a race element in it I'm sorry to say but I do think it's true um, because there are more Ukrainians who speak really good English and you know more access to Ukrainian spokespeople and, and stuff like that but I think it's become more acceptable for journalists to kind of take a, a position since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But I just found that all throughout the protests, I was really grappling with how to write about them. You know, did I have to choose between being a journalist and being a Hong Konger? Or was there a way that I could write about them as both a Hong Konger and a journalist? So that whole starting scene where I 
I had originally gone to interview the sign painters and I was just, you know, I interviewed them. I was watching them paint their signs. I was behaving completely journalistically. <laughs> and then I, I suddenly thought, I really want to join in. I really want to, you know, paint a poetry sign. I want also because of the King and Kelly and I wanted to know what it felt like. But I also wanted to be part of that moment. And I knew it wasn't particularly journalistic of me to do that. But I also knew that I was going to do that. And so I did. And yeah, I, I think it was a tension that I really had to navigate. And in the end, I decided that I would just try and be really honest about it and just really write honestly about the decisions that I'd made and why I had taken them. I actually didn't even really want to write about that whole, <laughs> uh, that whole episode on the rooftop to begin with. I, I thought maybe I could just not put it in because it's not very journalistic, but then I, you know, that would have been dishonest of me. So I, in the end, I included it. Well, it's a great way of highlighting just how there are, it's not a very simple situation for many people in Hong Kong. And you pointed out there kind of became increasing divisions between certain parts of Hong Kong, between the younger and the older and other, you know, groups. I was also kind of really interested in your descriptions of, you know, the thing, the violence that you saw, but also that you experienced because you were wearing, you know, a press vest that should have given you protection, but instead you were tear gassed pepper sprayed and had a gun pointed at you. You also described the fact that many people were left with PTSD and were very unwell from some of the, the tear gas exposures. Is it becoming harder and harder to be a journalist in those kind of situations where you, you're not really expecting that escalation of violence, looking at past protest movements in Hong Kong, like you pointed out there? Yeah, I mean, it was honestly very terrifying being a journalist on the streets in those circumstances. And one of the reasons why it was scary was the kind of accepted procedures just didn't apply. You know, even in wartime, journalists are not supposed to be targeted. If you wear, a, you know, if you wear a helmet marking you out as press and a, a press vest, soldiers or police are, are not supposed to target journalists, but that was not happening in Hong Kong. And, you know, many, members of the press ended up actually taking off their press vests and markings because they thought that it was safer. They thought they were actually being targeted. So there was that. And I, I would say also that I, all those things happened to me, but I think I got off relatively lightly compared to many other journalists. I mean, I knew journalists who were detained. I had a friend who um, spent a month in bed because they had just inhaled so much tear gas that they had all kinds of nerve damage. You know, I have, I have friends who still have PTSD from the things that they saw. Um, and, you know, I think for TV journalists, it was particularly horrifying because they were always at the front lines. They were always being tear gassed and they were always having to shoot these real scenes of violence. I mean, you know, I was not always on the front line and I was not always there. But, you know, I did get tear gas many times, probably. Um, I couldn't even count how many, you know. I started, I, I upgraded my mask until I had a full face respirator. But, you know, you still do feel the effects of tear gas. And I was pepper sprayed. 
And as you say, there was one incident where I was standing with a group of journalists and a policeman pulled his gun first at a woman, a, a female journalist standing next to me, and then he really slowly moved it round and pointed it at each of us in turn. And it was really terrifying. I, You know, I was so scared that I just didn't even really know what I was doing. Um, and I, I think, you know, under those circumstances, there were journalists and there were bloggers and live streamers who were going out day after day, week after week, just to document what was happening. And the amount of courage that was required to do that is astonishing, especially when there is actually a sort of physical price to pay. Yeah, yeah. And just finally, Louisa, to close out this conversation, I was really interested in something that you had mentioned in a previous interview about this burden of memory that seemed to have been placed on Hong Kongers, especially around things like Tiananmen, where, you know, you would have that yearly vigil, but now you don't. And that I think you mentioned, you know, that burden is now being passed on to others outside of Hong Kong because of the situation. And, you know, this book is really an act of remembering, but also inserting, as you say, Hong Kong voices back into history where they belong in a, in a prominent position. Um, but I wondered if you could just expand on that thought and where you think it's going in terms of where that burden of memory does lie. Well, I mean, I think that burden of memory is moving as Hong Kong populations move, you know, as people leave Hong Kong and move around the world, they're taking that burden with them. And I mean, we see it here in Melbourne where there's a growing population of Hong Kongers, you know, in the UK as well, because of these new paths to permanent residency that have been offered, actually both in Australia and the UK after the national security law was passed, we're seeing these new communities coalescing. And um, just at the beginning of April, a, a number of community groups across Australia organised the showing of this film called Revolution of Our Times, which is a film that's banned in Hong Kong. And they showed it in cinemas um, across Australia. And I actually, I actually saw it in South Yarra. And it was really an interesting moment because the film had been banned in Hong Kong to go and see it in itself is, you know, it's an act of defiance. And I wondered how many Hong Kongers would go given that when they put the tickets up for sale, so many people tried to buy them, the website crashed. <laughs> um, and then almost 7,000 people bought tickets in a single weekend. And when wow. they put the film on, yeah, it's a two and a half hour film. It's incredibly intense, very shocking, very sad. Everyone was crying. But when they finished it at, at the end, everyone was kind of sitting in their chairs, stunned. And then a man in front of me shouted, um, actually, the words on the front of my book, Hong Kongers, and then somebody else shouted the protest response, which is gayao, which means sort of go or add oil or, you know, yay or something like that. And, you know, this happened all across Australia. My friend saw it in Sydney and there the whole cinema was singing Glory to Hong Kong, which is uh, an anthem that's banned in Hong Kong now. What's really interesting is that filmmaker Kiwi Chow, he yesterday, he released this video for Hong Kongers in Australia. And he said, the national security legislation is really designed to instill fear 
in people. And what I want is for this film to be a beginning that Hong Kongers outside Hong Kong can join together and face this fear head on together and overcome it together. And I think we saw the beginnings of that um, in that cinema in South Yarra the other day. That's really beautiful and yeah, amazing. Thank you so much, Louisa, for sharing so many wonderful stories with us. And I hope people can check out your book, uh, which is called Indelible City, Dispossession and Defiance in Hong Kong. Thank you, Louisa Lim, for joining us. And thank you so much for having me, Amy. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. I'm really pleased to be joined by none other than Luke Hilakari, who is Secretary of the Victorian Trades Hall Council. Luke has been front and centre of this campaign to save the John Curtin Hotel in Carlton, often referred to as the Curtin, as shorthand. And there are many things that have happened since I last spoke with Felicity Watson from the National Trust here in Victoria. We spoke to Felicity about the beginnings of this fight, the fact that the union movement were looking to pull together funds to buy the Curtin, to preserve it as a pub and a live music venue. There were other buyers naturally in the mix and we hadn't really yet seen what would happen in terms of heritage listings or heritage protection beyond the overlay that was currently over that area as per the City of Melbourne. So a lot has happened since then and including the announcement of a green ban which Luke and colleagues including those from the National Trust and musicians and others in the union movement joined together last week to announce this green ban outside the Curtin Hotel. So we're going to talk to Luke about all of these things. So I welcome Luke now. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us here. G'day and welcome to all your listeners as well. Yeah, I have been following this and also being angry about this for as long as I've heard about it. And I know many also listening have felt very strongly about the Curtin Hotel, as well as other hotels and pubs that we've seen tragically lost for various reasons across the city. So, you know, this isn't an isolated incident. This is seems to be a common issue. But really, when I heard that the Curtin Hotel was under threat of being sold and certainly sold to someone who may not retain its original function, I mean, I did think is there anything sacred anymore? You know, what is left if you take away the Curtin Hotel? So I wanted to, first of all, ask from your perspective as Secretary of Victorian Trades Hall Council, but also, you know, someone who is a member of the union movement, what does the Curtin Hotel mean to you? Yeah, it means quite a lot. Um, it's a hotel that's over 150 years old, and if people don't know, it's right opposite Trades Hall. And at the same time, in which Trades Hall was built, which was two years after the gold rush. So when Victoria was still a colony, along came the John Curtin at the same time. And originally it was known as the Lycott Hotel, and it was basically an annex to Trades Hall. So unionists would spend their times there debating, you know, issues of the day, being, you know, causes around suffragettes, be it um, the establishment of Australia as a nation, albeit, you know, strike action at, you know, the local site that's in dispute. So... That's really been a, an important site for us. Um, there's been a lot of notable characters through there, but I suppose the one that looms largest would be Bob Hawke. Um, Bob Hawke described that place as his second office. 
Um, his family have put out some statements saying how important it is to preserve it. Um, but for us, it's not just about a union joint, which is, you know, important to us. It's also talking about what does the character of Melbourne feel like? So when we lose places like this, and we've lost quite a few pubs, um, people will remember the Corkman that was demolished in Carlton, so just around the corner there, um, illegally demolished. Um, when we lose all these things, we start to lose some of the character, and we just think it's highly inappropriate to replace um, an old heritage pub that is also one of the sort of the few live music venues that is dedicated to live music in that area as well. But when we lose all these things, we lose part of Melbourne, and that's our big problem with this. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I was one of those people very upset about the Corkman, given its proximity to Melbourne University and so many other uni students felt the same way. I was really interested historically in the fact that in 1975 and 1976, the ACTU tried to buy the John Curtin Hotel for a sum of about $500,000. And obviously that didn't happen because we'd be having a very different chat right now. But not only did that happen in history, history was repeating itself when the union movement this year had been trying to buy the John Curtin Hotel and be a bidder in the process for this hotel, which was sold. Unfortunately, it seems that you've been unsuccessful. I wonder, could you tell us about that bidding process or as much as you're able to and perhaps what the outcome has been. Yeah, so it's, it's a bit of a disturbing story, really. So I wish we did buy it in the 70s. So 500000 that would have been great. So what happened is there was a number of bidders that went in and a lot of those bidders were having conversations with us, which was terrific. So they wanted to be inclusive. Um, a number of bids wanted to make sure that they maintained it as a hotel and a live music venue that was respectful of its history. We put in a joint bid, and by we I mean the Electrical Trade Union with RMIT. Um, that bid was over $6 million, and the place sold for 5.5. The place sold to an offshore developer. We cannot get a hold of that offshore developer. We can't get hold of that person's name, despite contacting the agents, despite contacting the lawyers of the family who sold it. No one will give us their contact details, which we're really worried about because it sends a signal to us that you know, a couple of things might have happened. Um, like, we're trying to sort of put this puzzle together, and it's not great. So we, despite us having the highest bid, they went for the lower bid because there were some conditions when a university buys a property, and the conditions are pretty straightforward. They just have to ask government for permission, and that usually takes somewhere in the order of 60 days. Um, that is That happens all the time, right? So universities yeah. are big, big landholders. So this is nothing unusual. So it says to us that the family just wanted really quick money and that's what they took. Um, the stuff we're worried about is we had other bidders come to us and basically say that the agents went around saying, you won't have a problem with the Victorian union movement if you use a union-friendly building firm, someone that pays the right wages and looks after safety. And that's completely misleading. Um, they do have a massive problem. There is no building firm in Victoria that will keep us satisfied that they will keep keep this place as it is if they're going to build apartments. Like, there's just no way through on that. So I, I fear that what might have happened and why we're not being put in touch with the developer is if the developer knew that there was a green ban on it, well, maybe they wouldn't complete the transaction within 90 days. So I think there's a bigger game here, and um, I, 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 I might feel for the international developer who bought if they didn't know the full picture. If they do know knew the full picture and want to turn into apartments anyway, well, we just have a big old problem.
Yeah. Well, I know that the aim, it seems, is to retain the pub as both a pub and a live music venue, and that seems to be the line in the sand for you. And I know that you had mentioned there were other bidders who had also suggested they might put together office spaces that would be used during the daytime, and obviously that wouldn't necessarily interfere with it as a live music venue. I wonder, you know, clearly you weren't the only bidder. It seems that there were other bidders beyond this international bidder, the mysterious bidder, uh, who seemed to have put forward other plans uh, which may or may not have been suitable. I wonder if you could comment on those other bidders and, and what happened to them. Yeah, a couple of them dropped out. Um, one of them, I think, continued through, which was sort of this architectural group. Um, and they sat with us and they took us through some drawings and plans. And largely it looked like they were going to offset from, from the front. So the building's put towards the back, towards RMIT, and it'd go up five or six storeys and it'd be office space. Um, office space, which is, incidentally, we're, we're pretty hopeful that the union movement actually might rent back off them, <laughs> um, which, which would have been like a great scenario. But they would have done it in such a way that you'd retain the pub and then retain the live music venue and just upgrade it inside. Because, you know, there's, there's some broken windows and stuff like that that does need a little bit updating inside of JC's but it would have kept the character of the joint and, and that would have been an ideal bid. But I just I just can't believe really how uncooperative the Stellars and the family have been in this scenario. Like at no time did they ever respond to the community reaction that mm. we want to keep this special space. But if you think of live music venues across Melbourne, over the last 30 years, we've lost 16 of them. So one by one, they're being sort of picked off and, and the scenario is we don't get great live music anymore in this place. Like, people are up emerging, and bands that just want to give it a go, but there won't be space for them. And Melbourne loses, you know, part of that cultural character, which we think is unacceptable. I can't believe it either, really. Certainly hearing what you've just said, I'm speaking with Luke Hilakari, Secretary of the Victorian Trades Hall Council. Now, Luke, something else that's also happened before we get to the green ban is the Victorian Heritage Register, something that I discussed with Felicity in a hypothetical scenario. You have made a joint submission with the National Trust to the Victorian Heritage Register. That is something which outlines its social significance and cultural significance to Melbourne. And there is an excellent document on the National Trust's website, which outlines a lot of its history. But that, it seems, is definitely not going to be enough to protect the function and interior and purpose of the pub. So it seems that even if that was approved, for example, something more is needed and enter stage left the green ban. Yeah, that's right. So we're really pleased to do this with the National Trust. Felicity is, like, a fantastic. She's an Australian-leading expert. If there's any partner you want to put this together, it's really them. Mm. Um, and so we we're, like, really pleased to be in partnership with them. It's gone in. I expect Heritage Victoria will come back probably within two months and give a view on that. Um, you're right. It, 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 it ticks a number of boxes. Most Heritage applications that go in maybe tick one. This ticks three different boxes talking about it being significant to a cultural figure in history, being Bob Hawke and being um, an ongoing space that is important to our culture, which is sort of the music in the union scene, and then also a social history behind it. So it ticks a number of boxes. So we think it's a really credible spot for the Heritage Registry. But as you say, that might not be enough. And so Music Victoria, with a bunch of local bands, have got together with us, uh, with some residents, and 
you know, and, and of course unionists, to to put a green ban on the site. And that means that we're sending a message to every builder and worker in Victoria that if the developer comes in and asks you to work on that site, you don't take the contract, you don't cross the picket line, you don't work there. Yes. And green bans are something that have been used historically to protect a number of other significant buildings and gardens, for example, not only in Melbourne, but also in Sydney. So there is a historical precedent for a green ban on a significant building. It seems that in recent years, it probably hasn't been as common, but could you take us through that history, its relevance to now and what this green ban will mean? Yeah, the green bands were a big deal in the 70s and it really saved the character of Sydney and Melbourne. So if you look at some of our like iconic spaces like the Flinders Street Station Clocks, the Queen Vic Market, the City Bars, the Regent and the Princess Theatre, um, the Royal Botanical Gardens, the Windsor Hotel, um, a number of the sort of the Gothic banking buildings, the ANZ and CBA building, all of those buildings were protected by green bands. So at various times, developers want to come in there and significantly change those buildings or collapse them completely. And the union movement said, no, 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 we're, we're not doing this. We're exercising community democracy here and we're going to protect those spaces. Um, if, they didn't, if they didn't have done that, if, if they had just said, you know, we'll build whatever because, you know, that's our job, we just want to build. And don't get me wrong, we love building things. Um, Melbourne would, would, would be... Um, a very ugly city right now. And it would have been the same with Sydney. On top of that, we also want to protect green spaces, so the Royal Botanical Gardens, the Gallagher Reserves, and a number of places all throughout Sydney um, were protected by the union movement as well. So we don't think it's just good enough for us as a movement to say, hey, we want to do wages and conditions. It's also how we live as a society, and that's what a, sort of a green ban is. It says community democracy is more important than the needs of a developer to generate profit. And in terms of, you know, maybe a hypothetical situation in the John Curtin instance, uh, if we're thinking about the overseas buyer who might decide to either demolish it or build apartments above it or a whole range of options, if they decided to do something that would destroy its function and the character of the building, it seems that A, there would be a physical picket line, but also would it be that the buyer or developer would try to seek to get around this whole situation of, you know, union groups saying, no, we won't take up this job. Will they try and get around that by trying to use non-union workers? Yeah, they'll, they'll have to try to use non-union workers and we will have to oppose it. It would result in a physical picket line in which you'd see musicians and residents and unionists forming a picket. Now, this, this could go for a long time, these pickets, mm. so we would need large community support. But again, if you're a builder and you're trying to make a profit, um, and you know, we, we, you know, we're good with people making reasonable profits. Um, this is not a place that you would pick. Like you wouldn't pick a place where you'd have significant delays and disruptions. You'd probably go somewhere else. So what we, we would ideally like is the international buyer to come forward to sit with us and have a discussion. But at this stage, um, both the agent and the family are not going to assist to make that happen. It's a, it's a shame that it's not being facilitated. One funny and interesting story I read in the media release actually was about the fact that the Curtin Hotel, you know, not just having political significance, um, well, 
it also has a lot of cultural significance. For example, with the idea of the underground printing of Power Without Glory by Frank Hardy was actually concocted in the John Curtin Hotel. That was something that I discussed with John Fain actually last week. The Victorian nurses had a famous strike at the Curtin in 86. It seems that there are so many major historical events at this pub that even I, as a student of history, wasn't aware of, it kind of would be silly for anyone to let this happen. I wonder, the city of Melbourne has a role to play in this. What have they done to either support or not support this this situation? Have they been supportive? Yeah, look, hats off to uh, Sally Cap and especially Nick Reese. Um, they've done a lot of work from the city of Melbourne to be supportive. Um, they sought to put an instrument ban on any works there. I suspect if there was actually a, a physical picket, you could see Melbourne City Council is joining it as well. They are desperate to protect the city's heritage. And when you touch on the history, you're right, there, there's so many little stories that have come out of that place. It was like one of the first places in which women drank in a bar, led by Zelda Deprano. It was one of the first places where Aboriginal bands were regularly playing. Like, it was a really progressive joint where a lot of firsts happened in Victoria. And to lose it, I think it's disgusting. Um, and so if we have to have people come around to physically protect it, well, then that's what we should be doing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, obviously, we'll keep an eye on it from this perspective because I'm sure those listening would very much be interested in joining a picket to protect the Curtin Hotel. Is there anything that people can do now, the community can do now, to voice their support for the Green Band, the heritage application, the situation in general? How can we you know, voice our support for the action that uh, the National Trust, uh, yourself, the Victorian Trades Hall Council and others are taking? I think it's time for people who are listening to start having a broader community, like community conversation about what we care about in Melbourne. And if we care about pubs like this, and we want 150-year-old pubs to remain and we want live music in this state, well, maybe we need to start changing laws to protect not just the facade of these buildings but the function of them. That's the core bit. Now, it might seem unfair on some people that own these places and say, hey, you know, you know, I, I fairly bought it and I should be able to do whatever I like with it. But we sort of say no to that. Like, it, it's more than about one person who owns that little plot of land. It's about the social use of it because Melbourne... Um, Melbourne is special because we have joints like this, but also if you consider Victoria and, and the climate of Melbourne itself, like we need social spaces to hang out in winter, really. It, mm. it can be a cold and wet city and pubs have often been those places. So what I think we need to do is actually have a larger community conversation. And as, as we head to a state election in November, people should start talking about what's important. And I think protecting these places is super important, not just to like respect our past, but also to understand what our future would look like, and especially with the live music industry. Like Melbourne's, like Melbourne's a super important place in the music scene, and I just don't think we can keep taking away from it bit by bit and still think that we're going to get the quality of bands and music that so many Victorians enjoy. Yeah, I think this should be a state election issue. It absolutely should. 
uh, and I hope it will be because we need to have these conversations, as you say, as a public and get our politicians involved as well. Thank you so much, Luke, for joining us and really shedding light on so many of these issues and also leading the charge with the National Trust and the music scene. It's really much appreciated and I'm so glad that we have uh, people out there fighting for it so fiercely. So I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me on. I've just been speaking with Luke Hilakari, who is Secretary of the Victorian Trades Hall Council, and we've just been discussing the fight to save the John Curtin Hotel, which now includes a green ban, which was just announced last week. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.